Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Jeffrey can. Yes, he can. Come on. Tripping Over the Barrel today. Tim, I've been excited about this one. David Forsberg, of course, you remember David Forsberg, friend of the podcast, came on probably 40 episodes ago. This is a guy that he feels really strongly about and pushed us to have on this podcast. So I know this is going to be good because Forsberg doesn't waste my time with anything. And he said, Jeff, Jeffrey's the guy to have. 40 podcasts ago, how, how come it took so long to get him on? Yeah, what the hell? No, right, never mind. I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> We're popular guys, Tim. We're popular guys. So we, now, we when I see the, when I yeah. see the the C A N N, I always want to run to con rather than can. Is it can or con? It's it's can, yeah. Tin can, pop can, yeah. Con okay. is the the, uh, the I think people get confused with James Con because that's probably the most famous um, uh, spelling you've seen out there. But yeah, right. it's pronounced can. Yeah. Okay. Jeffrey Can. Yeah. So. Yeah. A speaker, um, a trainer, long tenured in the oil and gas industry, I think over 35 years. Um, I've heard you speak um, on some different forums and platforms, but we're going to take this one a little bit differently today. I really want to understand sort of you, where you came from, uh, what makes you you, uh, going back all the way to, you know, where'd you grow up? Where'd you end up going to college? and, And how did you get to where you are today, 35 years in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, you bet. Looking forward to it. Um, you want me to start? Yeah. <laughs> Tell the story. Drop it on us, man. Brief as we can make it, I guess. And- all, right, all right. All right. Here we go. All right. So I so, uh, uh, was uh, grew up in uh, St. John, New Brunswick, come on, places, which is uh, east of Maine. So for those Americans yeah. who are geographically uh, curious, I'm from, uh, imagine I'm from New Hampshire. The- from New yeah. Hampshire, so we're basically neighbors. Pretty much, yeah. It's a quick drive down, actually. I worked for Irving Oil for years and uh, made the commute back and forth to New Hampshire regularly. So yeah, Hmm. grew up there. Uh, Left to go to McGill University to study business and uh, uh, computer technology for business at the time, which would have been called MIS, Management Information Systems. And uh, recruited from there to join what was at the time Touche Ross. Uh, actually, no, I've skipped a step. No, this is the problem when you reach 60, you know, you're <laughs> sort of like, when was that again? So, uh, yeah, so I, I was recruited out of McGill to Imperial Oil and uh, moved to Toronto, spent three years working for Imperial there. And uh, I was uh, counseled to the, by Imperial Oil as well as uh, more informally that uh, without the engineering degree, prospects were dim uh, in the oil, oil sector. And, and so I elected to go pursue not an engineering discipline, but uh, an MBA and, and got deeper into the more commercial world. Uh, then from there joined what was at the time Touche Ross, and that became Deloitte um, literally six months later. The, mm. Back at that time, the, 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 it was the big eight became the final four. And uh, I stayed there for 29 years and worked in eight offices, including postings in Hong Kong and Brisbane, Australia. And each, it's probably about 10 years in, I got back to my roots and got focusing on oil and gas at a posting in Calgary. And uh, in the, all that time, I had the opportunity to work, you know, up and down the, the breadth of the industry, onshore, offshore, oil sands, conventional, natural gas, midstream, oil refining, fuel retailing, wholesaling and trading, ports, port operations, rail, 
um, spent a year in a fracking business, spent a year with a dr- drilling company, spent, uh, all, you know, so if you like, my superpowers, I kind of characterize it as uh, l- lots of breadth, pretty good depth. I can find bottom on most topics, even though I'm not not the engineer. And uh, that's probably the, you know, sort of the thumbs eye version. Uh, the, the There was a time when I was working in uh, uh, in Hong Kong, living in Hong Kong. I was working in mainland China on manufacturing projects. Hmm. And I took photographs of donkey carts delivering coal door to door. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, way back then. We now think of China as uh, uh, world's largest network of, of um, uh, bullet trains and nuclear power plants. And uh, But I remember when they got the energy delivery was donkey carts going door to door. I probably have photos here on my desk. They're going to they're gonna bring that back. Um, donkey cart <laughs> delivery has to be considered ESG. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, awesome. and the, the, uh, there was at that point, I thought, well, shoot, you know, half the world's population, if it's true in China, it's probably true in India, half the world's population, unlike Westerners who get their energy by flicking a light switch, you know, yeah. they get their energy by unloading a cart. And, uh, so, uh, that's what really got me at the time to go back from, uh, you know, instead of, you know, random walk around the world, looking at manufacturing, I, I went back to my roots in oil and gas and I've stayed there ever since. Uh, so so you say that about China. Uh, my boss, he, he went shut seismic in various places. Mm-hmm. One of the things he describes is, you know, you set out your your recording devices at various places around the city, countryside, whatever. And the Chinese company had hired, you know, locals to go sit on chairs next to each phone, each each box, and just sit there and watch it so it wouldn't nothing would happen to it but that was so unsophisticated of a solution yeah you know for thinking about what they were actually doing at that moment it was a it's you know when you have that kind of manpower okay well yeah just let's go do another just put another donkey cart out there yeah well when your labor card is uh, labor cost is low uh you're motivated to put labor onto the problem and sure. uh, so in, in the oil industry, in, in um, many of the national oil companies, uh, their, their headcount per barrel is off the charts relative to North America. We are extremely lean in North yeah. America. We have no idea. I was doing a project in the Middle East for uh, one, of the, one of the state companies there and I asked them for their Solomon. It was a mid, mid, midstream downstream play. And I asked them for their Solomon scores. <clears throat> if you don't know what the Solomon scores are, a little mansplaining here. So Solomon is a, a global benchmarking service that will give you right down to the actual piece of mechanical equipment in your oil refinery, precisely how much energy you should use, how many people you need to maintain it, what your costs should be. And uh, it's extraordinarily detailed. So it's called the Solomon, the Solomon benchmarks. So I said to them, what are your Solomon benchmarks? And they kind of looked around. They said, uh, we don't want to show those to you. <laughs> um, why is that? No said, because we know we're triple the headcount of anybody else, and so our, our, our measurements are all off. And this, so this mm. is cool. we, we 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 see our our industry in North America is very very lean. And the rest of the world, it's a, it's a it's an employment agency for many companies. It's not really it's not really an oil industry. It's to keep locals well employed and looked after. Now all that's changing. I was in Kuwait in 2020, 2019, just before the pandemic. And um, the at the time, the oil company there was 
uh, had said to me, I, I meetings with them, I was talking about product cost and productivity. And they were like, oh, we are now under instruction from the kingdom to begin to think very much more strategically about what jobs we provide in this industry. No more, no more easy, no more sitting on chairs, staring at geophones. Are they actually working? Those those days are gone. So the, uh, the industry is changing, changing rapidly as we speak. But 29 years at Deloitte, I I mean, that's not a, that's a have your bag ready at any moment. We could need you somewhere else pretty quickly. So what was that like? I mean, I don't know how many times you moved, you know, to various countries or traveled very much, but. What's that like as a young coming into the industry or into a professional career? What was that like for you? Well, a few things that you don't appreciate at the time, but that you discover over time. So first is you discover that uh, when you have to have your bags packed at a moment notice to go somewhere, you can't really commit to too much on the home front. Yeah. So the the idea that uh, you could say, well, Monday nights, I'm going to take a course. Yeah. No, you're not. You can't commit to that. You want a pet? Mm, you're going to have to find <laughs> someone to look after it all the time. Yeah. Uh, so you don't really appreciate that till you get into it for a little while. And then you realize, holy shoot, I'm being kind of locked out of all this stuff. Uh, the, the, uh, the plus side, though, is you get to see the world and somebody else pays. So there's no <laughs> right. If, right. if you have a sort of a wanderlust, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the, then the third thing you learn is that most of the people you deal with in most companies, uh, uh, have lots of experience, 20 years of experience, but it's basically one year of experience repeated 20 times. Yeah. It's not the same as in this consulting world where you're going from job to job to job because every job is going to be completely different. So after about five years, you've done 40 jobs. Your range of experience is dramatically different from who you're dealing with. They've typically done the same thing for 20 years. Now, they know that job exceptionally well, but in terms of experience, you know, the consulting world, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. And, and, and that can be very intoxicating. It's, it's like you, you know, when you get into it and you really like it, it's, uh, it can be very hard to leave. But I also, there's, it's not that, that part of the industry is known for, I guess, burning people out. And, you know, they, of course, they go settle at their clients. Yeah. Yeah, the turnover's high, turnover is very high. Uh, I worked for uh, one of the oil sands companies on the turnover problem, and, and they, were, they were pushing 7% turnover. And in a large industrial complex, 7% turnover means your workforce forgets how the plant works. Like your institutional knowledge is walking out the door. And so you don't remember, like, how do we, how do we fix that last time? Like, <laughs> so you want to keep that turnover to 1% to 2%. At that yeah. level, your employees can basically memorize the plant. Hey, this pump's gone down. Oh, I know where the other 30 versions of that exact same pump are on this whole, you know, multi-kilometer square scale facility. I can go fix all of them now. Uh, so you'd be, all that knowledge walks out the door. In consulting, you want a turnover around 15 to 20%. You want right? that. You want that because you want a constant refreshing of insight yeah. and talent and challenge and creativity. So... The business model is in totally geared towards bringing people in, uh, work them hard. They learn lots. Most are not going to survive as partners or get to the point where they own the business and you, sure. they move on and then they become your alumni and hopefully they become clients down the road. Yeah. 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 If it ends well. Um, if it ends well. <laughs> th- this is, this is fascinating stuff. I didn't know about the 29 years at Deloitte because, because when you hit my radar, it was more for the bits and bites 
Um, oh, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the books that you've written and sort of what the what the slant and angle you've taken in kind of late in your consulting career and now as you are a speaker and, uh, uh, you know, lecturer in the space? Well, the books are a whole story in their own right. Um, they started out actually, uh, you know, I started writing articles when I moved to Australia. So I'm going to wind the tape back. I moved to Australia and I'm sitting on the couch with my wife and she said, hey, you're new to Australia. How are people going to find you? And I said, oh, well, how else do you find anybody these days? You go into Google and <laughs> type. So she said, have you tried that? And I'm, no, no, let's do that. So we sat on the couch together. I remember the moment vividly. We typed my name into Google search engine. First Jeffrey can that pops up. Convicted pedophile. I knew it. I knew it. Oh. <laughs> I knew it. There was a Jeremy Funk around the same age as me who around the time that I moved from Boston to Colorado, a Jeremy Funk in Utah committed like the multiple homicide type exactly. thing. So the first, yeah. this is 2003, 2004. People are like, dude, you live in Colorado, right? This isn't you. I'm like, yes, I didn't murder two people. Everything is good, but it's scary, right? When you, when you see that, like, uh-oh. Online, and that's your brand, right? So I, I resolved then and there that I would move myself onto Google's first page, and I would get this this convicted pedophile into the background. And uh, uh, that, that meant... Um, uh, writing articles, having a constant stream of content. And uh, so I began to write a weekly article series about the liquefied natural gas industry. So I wrote 250-odd articles in time about every every nook and cranny of that industry. I came to the end of that and I said, huh, big body of work, a lot of words, can't do anything with it. I moved back to Canada and said to Deloitte, now what? And they said, this thing digital in oil and gas looks like it might be a thing. And so I started another blog series, but this time more mm. strategically. I said, this is not going to just be an article. It's going to be a series of articles around a theme, and that will turn into a book. And so once I had the 80 articles written, the first 80, uh, that gave me around 100,000 words, roughly. And so you throw off the top of each article and the bottom of each article, boom, you've got a book. The, the problem is the blogs aren't in the right order. So you have to reorder them to get to the book. Yeah. And that's where the book came from. Oh, it was really a series of articles, yeah. And the second book, uh, I was just a contributing author. I wrote a chapter for a book on machine learning and data science in oil and gas. Yep. All about the role of AI and, and how it works. Yep, and the I third book, which was just released in March of this year, so you know, four or five weeks ago, is called Carbon Capital in the Cloud. Yes. A playbook for digital oil and gas. Uh, the, if the first book, Bits, Bites, and Barrels, was aimed at trying to say, here's why digital innovation is good for you. Um, what it highlights is there's a, a, a disconnect between the speed of a digital innovation out there and the ability of the oil industry to adopt. Like we're, we're sure. totally cross-threaded. And so the second book is, all right, so who does this well? Who actually is adopting digital innovations at, at speed? And uh, so the second book paints the, the nine case studies examples nice. and, uh, and then lots of, uh, lots of story about, about who does it well, tactics people can follow and, and so on. So is your speaker, trainer, author in the blockchain? <laughs> yep. Uh, you, yes, got your, you got your fingers in a lot of those areas. What is the, what's your, I mean, I know it's all fun for you because you're doing it all, but mm. what kind of is your, what excites you about all the different endeavors? For you personally, which one of those do you gravitate towards? Well, the uh, they're all fascinating. 
Uh, for me, I think cloud is largely now a given. I don't know of any any big companies who really wonder whether cloud's a good idea or not. So from a from a technology standpoint, the, the technologies that I really do have a strong interest in are any of the machine learning and artificial intelligence tools because the our industry sits on an ocean of data and we don't have enough people or horsepower to process it all. That's that's our big problem. There's a gap in, in not just capa- capability, we don't know how to analyze the data, but sheer capacity. There just isn't enough of us. And so, so how do you overcome that? You bring these tools to bear, and uh, so that's the first thing that's of great interest. And, and there's no, there's no, almost no l- limit to the upside in um, in, in that, that that world. The second problem we have is trust. Uh, our industry, we produce a fungible product that uh, is completely indistinguishable from every other molecule of <laughs> product. It's quite easily stolen. Uh, it uh, is very easily sold. It's enormously valuable. It can be sold everywhere and anywhere. It's not like you're trying to f- sort of sell diamonds. There's only a s- small number of places you can you can do diamond sales. You can sell a barrel of oil for any, or gasoline anywhere. And so our industry has this huge trust problem because none of the parties trust each other in the mix because mm-hmm. of all of these factors. And so we need different ways to trust each other. And this is the role of blockchain. And most of the people in the industry don't quite grasp this yet. They don't still don't get it. They still think, oh, it's Bitcoin or some other nonsense like that. and uh, But I think they're totally missing the the power of this to reimagine this industry and improve trust. And once you improve trust, you throw away all of the old ways of doing business that, that sure. we put into place to make sure we have trust. They, they all disappear. And that, that, to my mind, is the long game. The, the short game is uh, put these tools to work to interpret all the data, but the long game is reimagine this industry with a different trust basis and, and really take out cost. Hmm. Really, really good stuff here. I want to dive in a little bit into the Cliff's notes of this without revealing all of your secrets. You mentioned sort of nine case studies. Yep. What would you say to the operator that is traditionally a laggard, maybe has had the same staff in place for a while, and then yep. recently a new board member, CEO, ESG person comes in and says, we need to really start pushing this. We need to move to cloud. We need to automate. We need to optimize in the field and in the back office. That means AI. Yep. It means machine learning. It means operating by exception maybe yeah. blockchain, all of the buzz terms that we can possibly believe. Where does a company start? Like, what do you do for the company that's at ground zero and has the same infrastructure that they had 15 years ago? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And, and the book actually has case studies from each of the major verticals in the industry, integrated companies, upstream players, midstream, downstream. It, it's, um, it, it, this is really a management question. <clears throat> the board can say what they want. Your, your specific example is new board member comes in. Uh, so the first challenge you've got to get is alignment around the board that this is valuable and meaningful to do. And to give you an idea of how hard that is, there are four big oil companies in Calgary that are basically 70% of our oil production. Only one of them is really kind of torqued into this. The other three are doubling down on the traditional ways of doing things. Huh. So this is not, it's not a given that you get a board member in who's kind of enlightened. Maybe they work for Cisco or IBM or something, and they're like, oh, you should, we should do this. It's not a given. So your first thing you got to do is get the board sorted. Then the board has to work with management. And uh, then management has to get sorted. And uh, the problem there is um, management takes a lot of work to get management up across the curve, what this is all about. And uh, the performance metrics that the board agrees and then imposes often block management's ability to do very much. So assuming you get management aligned, you get the board aligned. So yeah. now your next truth is, all right, now what do we do with the troops? 
And at that point, the 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 key is to uh, find the uh, within any any of oil company organization I've ever met. There's going to be some twenty percent of the people there who are super keen. They yep. podcast in their spare time, for instance, and they they know what this technology can do. Yeah, exactly. So the creation, how do you <laughs> unleash those people and get them to uh, play the role of your digital leaders? I mean, Tim, you, you know that? they're all your age. How do you get them on board? There's a there's a point right now, if we look at where the industry is, there's a lot of guys my age who are on the board or management or whatever, <clears throat> they see the end of their career. Yeah. And where do we want to go? Just If I just stick around for another three or four years doing what we're doing, I don't have to worry about it. Correct. I think exactly. that's part of it. Yep. Um, and then there's the resistance. And, I, you know, and we know that there are the guys at the lower ends of the company that like uh, – our uh, our new uh, Jose Rodriguez, yeah, they have the vision, but the mechanism to really drive change, they just don't have that kind of power yet. Now, fortunately, he's at a great place that kind of matches his vision. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a it's tough to walk down, and then you never you always run into, you know, oh, we want to make this change, and you run into, hey, we're We've got all the IT resources on our ERP changeover, yeah. so yeah. we won't. You won't have any access to that for two years. Yeah. 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 Okay. Then it really isn't a priority. Yeah. yeah well, it, it is agenda altering in these organizations, right? You just it's, uh, but uh, good examples though. Companies have done this well. They, they, typically, they find one enlightened, quite senior guy or gal, who. And by that, I mean not the CEO, but they will be senior vice president, executive vice president. They've got a broad remit and uh, they they have the bug and they get it. And uh, sometimes yeah. that's the CFO. Um, it's not usually the CIO. They're generally too low in the organization. Hmm. But uh, if the CIO does report direct to CEO at the, and then they're at the table, then it could be the CIO. But but for the most part, I've, the successful ones I've seen, they're going to have a title that that puts them into ops or production or some other um, frontline operational uh, role. And they're going to be quite senior. And um, uh, simple things. You just ask the next level down. This year on your personal plan for your unit, you will do one digital thing. I don't care what it is. Maybe you train people. Maybe you go on a data cleanup exercise. Maybe sure. you um, put one of your applications on the cloud. Just one. Sure. But you you got to do one thing. And so what you do is you start the flywheel by putting one thing on. Then the next year, it's two things. And then the year after that's three things. And pretty soon, uh, what you find is that uh, you've got enough um, momentum that you can get some uh, action going. Experiments and trials and things are actually proving themselves out. And what I've found is once the flywheel gets moving, you've got the, the, the believers on board. You don't have much problem with this. It becomes much more of a where do you find the capacity to to do it faster? That's really the the real issue that lurks out there. So, Jeffrey, when you go into organizations, are you primarily working with uh, upstream oil and gas operators and advising them on one of these areas, whether it's cloud, uh, carbon, you know, uh, productivity, ESG, blockchain? Is it generally one of those? And and where does it where does it tend to start? And who do you interface with at these companies? Well, if you work back, where it's it's hard to kind of be def- like super clear, and here's the one guy, and this it doesn't it's not quite that way. Every uh, the industry's complicated, as you know, upstream, midstream, downstream. 
uh, the different segments of the industry behave very differently. Refining is a manufacturing industry, right? 24-7 process continuous manufacturing. Uh, it's already highly automated. And uh, so how, you, how do you engage with that group when um, it, it's not going to be the same as, say, someone who's in retail? Uh, so it depends. And, um, but in the upstream, for the most part, uh, this is principally about taking companies whose business models predate the internet in many cases and trying to move them forward to where they are prepared to do some things uh, differently. Uh, and uh, so, uh, it, it, as I said, it depends. There's just no one. It's just no one answer here. Yeah, I mean, and, and Tim, this this kind of aligns with conversations that I've had and you've had with with the Rob Hembrys of the world. With no technical debt, you can approach this much differently, right? Like Very I can point oh, to yeah. some companies today that started fresh and have a hundred percent cloud native across the board, and and they can do that. They're also aware they couldn't have done that when they were at the Pioneers or Devons or Chesapeake's or whoever, because there's more red tape, there's more systems, maybe it's a bigger lift. Um, but it's fascinating to see what some of these leaders do. I think when given the opportunity, most of the people will look to optimize lower costs, uh, take advantage of what we have from a cloud and technology perspective. It just doesn't seem like the full reality for a lot of companies. Um, yeah. and, and you said something, Jeff, that that's stood out to me a little bit, and that's Companies that had been around before the internet. Well, how many companies exist that can even think 25 years, right? Um, how many of these companies yeah. think they're going to be around in, in five years? Maybe right now it's more optimistic than it was a year ago when everybody was filing chapter 11. But yeah. um, I, I just, I don't see a lot of companies that even have the 25-year mindset. The ones that do are willing to talk about ESG and blockchain and have moved toward cloud. The rest, yeah. generally speaking, it's like we can't even get there. I think, there, that's yeah. just, I think that's just the nature of the West, Western countries. We don't play a long game. In politics, in business, everything's a short game. Well, capital markets yeah. force that because you've got to yeah. show up with a dividend or a your EPS uh, target every 90 days. So it forces you to behave in a certain way. But when you, you get into these big tenders that come out of the Middle East, with some of the companies you've worked with, obviously, you see this desire that seems impossible to get done in the time frame that they're suggesting. But you see what they're trying to build towards, you know, set up an infrastructure for 25 years from now. Yeah, yeah, it's very true, but it's exceptionally hard to do. In, in, 20, yeah. in 2015, 2016, I left Australia to return to North America. And by that point, I'd gotten to know the four uh, big LNG projects on the East Coast of Australia quite well. And so this is 2016, not that far ago when you sort of think about it. And uh, I got to know the, the, the senior uh, technology professionals in there quite well. And each of them took me aside after I you know, was on my way moving back and said, um, very, very interesting piece of data. Three, three of the four. The third one hadn't actually, a fourth one hadn't actually turned into a project yet. So it was still early stages for them. But the other three, to a, to a person, they said, we have built our businesses as if the internet did not exist, mobile computing wouldn't work for us, and big data was fictitious. This is in 2016. Oh, no. Oh, I thought you were talking about 1996. Okay, I lost well, you for a second. Got 26, it. 2016. 2016. 
So what was going on there? Well, the, they're, they're in build, they're in build and deliver the business. And it takes four to seven years to build one of these things. So it's coming live in 2016. So that means that they were, their design was 2010. And so they were using the very best insight they had back in 2010, which would have come from where? 26 to 2010, maybe 2006. You go back to it's just po literally post Y2K. That was the mindset that was flowing into the design of these businesses. And now they're locked into a business model that, you know, in hindsight, kind of really, you don't, the internet does not exist. How did you get to that? But that's the that's the challenge of even you know, back to your Middle East example. You could put a big tender up, but you, you're going to run headlong into armies and armies of people through through this industry, who only know one real good way to get stuff done, and that's the one that they just did that worked. And they're going to bring it and try and put it into your new business. Yep, you, you got you got to do a lot of work to kind of break through that. But back to the point um, earlier that um, we uh, talked about Jeremy, which you didn't actually kind of fully explore, but um, I believe quite strongly in this, the case results are pretty clear. Unless you've got the CEO saying, this is the way we're going. Yeah. Get on or get off the bus, right? Unless you've got that, your digital change efforts are really going to struggle because <laughs> people it, have an out. So it's, it's interesting though, on that point, this is a real example that I've been a part of. <clears throat> we're talking to higher levels and they say, we're going to reduce carbon emissions by, I guess, source one, source two, carbon emissions by 15% yep, yep. by 2025 or something along those lines. And, you know, first thing they do is they go sell out, sell their, you know, worst offender to someone else, which uh, that's fine. Yep. And then start investing in new gas projects. But the problem is they're going to meet their target for 2025. But as they have to start, as that project ages and they have to start putting compressing out in the field, suddenly they're actually coming back up. And that's the part that, you know, it, the way you plan for that is very difficult. Yeah. I think of it as a, it's like a, 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 a for en engineers out there, it's the slope of a line. You know, if, if your, if your goal is by 2050, say to be to half your current emissions or, or carbon neutral, that means over the next 20 years, you've got a one or 2% slope line. You're going to have to climb your way up. Now, every year you don't do anything. The slope of that line gets a little steeper. <laughs> Because the, the amount of time you got is, but your target yeah. hasn't changed. So the line's steeper. Oh, and by the way, you're adding production. So it's getting steeper still, right? So the, the people who don't think about this in these terms of, uh, and, and really understand what the decarbonization or diverse energy diversification is doing to them, uh, they're in big trouble. Like it doesn't take much for like three or four years to go, you haven't done anything and shoot, suddenly your, your annual reduction is no longer one or 2%. It's three or 4%. And the idea that you can, oh, I'm going to carve off my, quote, worst offender every year and just kind of get rid of them. Well, every every part of your business is going to become the worst offender in that curve scenario. So it's, uh, yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal. But it's got to be done. Otherwise, uh, we stand little hope as an industry yeah. uh, to be able to compete down the road. Yeah. No, th these will be carbon capture companies eventually, and that'll be sort of what they hang their That's what their they hats do. on. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, you mentioned something that I thought was was pretty cool. Um, so, so I actually know someone who heads up ESG at a small publicly traded company. 
Oh yeah. And this person claims to have zero support within the organization. Everybody hates him except for the CEO. The CEO is the only one that listens to him. His budget is directly through that channel, but nobody else in the business wants to hear it. Right. This is a necessary evil position that one person seems to value and understand. That really goes along with what you said with it's going to take that level of leadership for projects to happen, especially as you get in the smaller mid cap. The big companies, they have a little bit more um, time and resources and knowledge as it relates to these things. But if we're talking ESG, I mean, a lot of the small companies and privates feel that it's simply greenwashing and not something that will impact them. And what I fear is. When the the rules come down, they're going to come hard, and then there will be fines levied, and then we'll be reactive to it, right? So it's yeah. going to be this big curve of of catching up. But now seems to be the time to get ahead of it. Yeah, I think that's very true. In Canada, the price per tons moving its way to one hundred and seventy dollars, and at that level, you know, it's it's painful at thirty, but people don't get rid of their F one fifties at what thirty dollars a ton. That, that that doesn't change anything. Yeah. But $170 a ton, okay, you got my attention. And uh, it ramps up like that quite quickly, that cu- that curve, you know. And so to your example, where the, the CEO gets it and they've assigned a person and they get it, but nobody else does, that's a leadership failure. It's a failure of leadership and a failure of strategy because the, the, the leadership has not made it a clear to the organization and hasn't set the metrics appropriately for people to kind of go, okay, this is actually the mission. They think they're on the old mission. The mission's changed. And so they got, yeah, everybody get the table set. So they get onto the right mission. And uh, so that's what I, in that case, with that CEO, I'd, I'd be saying your issue isn't that you haven't got the right idea. You, 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 you haven't got the troops on the right mission. Mm. Fascinating. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to take it lighter now. So <laughs> <laughs> 29 years at Deloitte, you've got your, your speaker circuit and everything else. Mm. What is the, the, to the Western North American audience that we cater to, where's the strangest place you've been? For, strange? For, strange? Well, you know, the oddest sound, at least more entertaining for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been to Kathmandu 12 times. Or, you know. uh, well, well the, the times I was in and out of China <clears throat> prior to the uh, the most recent, uh, it's, it's transformation in the last 25 years, was truly staggering. It's just like the, the experiences there. I could write a whole book about it. Um, one project I did just to illustrate. So this was a, I, don't, I think they, they, this is what they told me. And I, have to, I had to believe it because I didn't have anything else to work with. But uh, the, there was a, a, a company I was working with who wanted to get into making auto parts because China was going to have cars, right? So we're going to have auto parts. And uh, their original business was making howitzers, field cannons. And uh, their logic was, well, we know how to, you know, um, uh, running lathes and things. We can machine parts like that you would use for a cannon. Maybe we can turn that into machine parts. And uh, the factory was located inside a mountain. And so they'd hollowed out the mountain and the whole factory is inside the mountain. And they, they were told me that uh, prior to they got out of the howitzer business, the only time they could come out was when the American satellites weren't overhead. because they didn't want, <laughs> they didn't want the, American, <laughs> the Americans to know that they're actually manufacturing howitzers in this particular mountain cave. I don't know if it's true or not, but they were dead serious when they told me they weren't, there's no, no kidding around. Um, and so that was, that was like, okay. <laughs> We're not in Kansas here anymore. <laughs> so that was weird. 
there was a, a time I was in, um, I was in a Chinese, uh, again, Chinese business. And I was uh, being the white, only white guy there. They, were, they had kind of a nice dinner on for me. And they, they, they said, we're going to bring the soup course first. I'm great. So this woman comes out with, <laughs> she's got these elbow length asbestos gloves holding this bowl of soup. And she puts it in front of me and it is like steaming, like it's like carbon dioxide steaming coming out of it. And uh, she, uh, she, through the translator, she said, uh, would you like it hot? And I'm just sort of looking at the soup going out and see how you get it hotter than this. And she said, no, no, we, make it, we can make it hotter. So another woman comes out and she's got no gloves on. She's holding another bowl. And I look in that bowl, there's no steam coming up but it's filled with boiling oil. And on the oil is all of these red hot chilies and all of the liquid red has leaked out of the chilies. It's now on the floating on the surface of this oil. And she dips a ladle into this thing and starts pouring this very hot oil into my already very hot soup. <laughs> and she goes, say when. <laughs> wow. Very hot. And there was time I was in a Chinese, uh, a Japanese place. I was working for a Japanese company. And they said, well, I'll take you out to dinner. And took me to their favorite sushi bar. Uh, and um, uh, they said, would you like some shrimp? Oh, okay. So there's a big tank behind the sushi chef. He grabs a net, scoops some shrimps out. And I, like literally, you couldn't see how fast he was doing this. He had taken the head off the shrimp deshelled it, deveined it, and puts it on the plate and still twitching like this. Oh right? man, that's awesome. Wow. Uh, totally still twitching. So the the other the, the Japanese guys all kind of grab it and eat it. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I prefer my food dead, to be honest. <laughs> it's still <alive. laughs> that's a bit much. And so he's they said, no, no, I'll give it a try. So I, I picked it, I waited a few seconds, I picked it up and it sort of jiggled it in my fingers and Okay, it's pretty dead. I'm, I can put this in my mouth now. So I put it in my mouth. I bit down. As soon as I bit down, it came back to life. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. You just, <laughs> you just crunch it really quickly. And then the next dish came out. He goes, would you like some like fish, baby fish? Sure. So it brings oh, out man. a glass tumbler like you'd have like a shot glass. And then it is filled with all these fish swimming around, little baby eels, all alive. And you you drink it like a shot glass, Whoa. and then these fish go wriggling around in your mouth, and you swallow them. <laughs> wow! <laughs> what? I've heard some stories of talking fish and all that, but yikes! Totally cool. That's what I'm saying. There's movie. there's good things about consulting, and then there's that. <laughs> As they, uh, you know, I, I remember you know when I was traveling a bunch when I was with Slumberjay. Yeah, you know I invariably I'd run into some airport issue or something, but I just got so good at, you know, finding a way out of it. I never panicked traveling. Yeah. Well, maybe once or twice. I was in a near but, panic once. I was invited to a brothel and I had to figure out how, how to get out of that one. That was awkward. Well, I'll tell you that one of my trips to Indonesia was playing pool in the billiards room or the karaoke room. And, uh, we were hitting the, you know, I was, my back's to the door. And I noticed that all the guys who were in the room, their eyes were no longer looking at me. They were looking over me. Oh, yeah. And so I turned around and the whole wall was lined with pretty Chinese women. And I was, and then it became obvious that I was expected to choose one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I, my other two friends, they had already grabbed one and moved. I was like, oh, my goodness. So 
then I'm just sitting here trying to plan my exit for the rest of the evening. How am I going to get out of this? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's weird because, you know, I've been involved in a lot of, you know, anti-trafficking stuff, you know, in my later career. And thinking back at how much I had witnessed that night yeah. that was, in fact, human trafficking. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So it was a... <clears throat> It's just interesting, the things you kind of see out there when you get into places where morals are just a little bit different. Yeah, very different. I remember explaining to the, the, the people I was with, I was like, how do, you, I mean, how do you get out of something like that? You can't give them something they can argue with, right? Oh, this, uh, you, um, you got to give them something they can't argue with. And so I simply said, look, this isn't part of my culture, man. Like, we don't, yeah. we don't this isn't it. We don't do and they can't argue yeah. with that. Right. You, you could you could say, well, I don't do this because, you know, it's, I can't afford it or I'm concerned about health. No, they can. They've always got an argument for that. But you, but you have to know this, this is not part of my culture, man. Then they can't argue. And then you can walk away with your head up and they don't lose face and you don't lose face. And life is good. So that's been my huh. my go to card. Not part of my culture, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got one more question before we uh, before we let you run. I know you're a busy guy. Um, I want to talk about what COVID did for your business, because that's actually when you hit my radar. It's when I started seeing you on more of these podcasts and videos and recordings. Um, what did it do for you and for your business? Is that when you fully embraced this, this sort of online or had you been there and then just accelerated it once you were home more? Uh, no, it was 100% literally overnight pivot. No kidding. Yeah. Yep. 100%. I was on the road all the time. Three to wow. three weeks out of um, four every month, um, and uh, everything was in person. And uh, then when the pandemic hit, I had to literally took about ninety days. But um, you know, truth be told, watch a few YouTube videos. Uh, there was a whole online world before um, I, my, I stepped into this. Obviously, gamers <laughs> sure. and the like. Sure, yeah, they knew how to do this. So you have to have to go find the right YouTube videos. And all I did was um, order all that technology online from Amazon. I did it quickly before the things got, got goofy with the supply chain. There was a while there where you couldn't buy a webcam if your life depended on it. Yeah. And light I, ring. I My light up. ring. Those light things ring, shot yeah. up in value real fast. Real oh, fast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it went, literally went overnight. It switched. And uh, that's when I, uh, so then I had to recraft everything I did around that. So my hmm. speaking went, became virtual instead of in person. My training courses, I had to redesign them for a virtual experience using Zoom rooms and breakouts and stuff, not uh, in person. Um, sure. the, I became uh, much more adept at producing videos. Um, so all kinds of, all, just literally overnight, it, it had to change. But you, you did it out of necessity, but now looking back, was it, is it, it's now an accelerator for you. Uh, very much so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I can do things now that I could I could never do. The streaming technology is so good. Uh, I can turn on and and cr create what looks to to the on someone who's not not as familiar with the technology. It looks like a television show, and I'm doing right. it from 35 square feet in my one of my yeah. spare bedrooms. I mean, it's yeah. pretty remarkable, really. And the other thing, other pe people don't appreciate the technology is very very um, flexible. So what you turn on for a video podcast is all exactly the same technology used for a podcast. It's the same right. for doing a video sh uh, streaming. It's the yep. same thing you'd use for a training course. So you just repurpose the same platform, just yep. slightly configured differently, and poof, you've got a, comp a whole new product offer. Oh, yeah. It, it <laughs> literally was overnight. Well, good for you. 
So, so real quick, but where, where can people find you? And then I want to hit you with one, one kind of stumper of a question, but where can people find you, your website, LinkedIn, all that good stuff? So the easiest way to find me is uh, just to look me up, um, former convicted pedophile. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> can we edit that? Julie, can we edit that? <laughs> G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-C-A-N-N.com. And uh, my Twitter handle is Jeffrey Can. Uh, and uh, from my website, you can find a contact page. My email address uh, is jeff at jeffreygan.com. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, the podcast is called Digital Oil and Gas. Yep. And I've just started a new video series called Energy Innovations, um, which I produce using the streaming technology. And uh, we, I interview um, uh, innovators in energy of all kinds, yeah. hardware, software, business nice. models, wherever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'd love to to have a chat offline about some of the innovation you're seeing. You mentioned ML and um, and AI, and those are areas yep. that I'm starting to see a lot more of, especially in the production um, optimization and automation space. So, yep. Um, curious, but, you know, your your thoughts on that? Yeah, sensors, Internet of Things stuff, cloud, SCADA cloud environments is all. It's just crazy how fast things are changing out there. So, the yeah. routing by exception stuff, Tim. You know yep. all about oh, operate yeah. by exception, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever you call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so here, here's the one I wanted to hit you with, and, and I'm stuck on asking this question now to our guests because I liked <laughs> Jose's answer. I typically ask, like, what would you tell yourself five, 10 years ago, right? When you were five, 10 years younger. In your case, maybe it's 15, 20 years younger, but, but what, what would you tell yourself to save yourself a little bit of heartache or, or, or increase your pace or, or whatever it is if you could go back a decade? <laughs> Well, there's a handful of things I would say to myself. Um, these are in no particular order, but they're kind of like good life rules. Uh, n- number one is follow the money. Mm. And um, uh, shortages tell you where the money's going to be. Mm. It's a bit like Grant- Wayne Gretzky playing hockey, right? He never skated to where the puck was because by the time he got there, it's too late. So yep. what you do is, is skate to where the puck is going to be. And uh, in, in, in business and in life, I think that means uh, look for a shortage or a mismatch in supply and demand and go there, uh, you, you'll find you'll find salvation. Um, a next one would be, uh, you gotta own your own career. If, the, if I made a mistake or two at Deloitte, it would be that I was a bit too passive and not as aggressive yeah. in, in, in being the one demanding the new role mm. and the promotion and the like. I was a bit mm. too Canadian and humble. And in hindsight, that was a bad, that was a bad strategy. Um, and uh, probably the third one is uh, find someone to pay you to see the world. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so pat yourself on the back. You got that one done. I got that one done. I didn't realize it at the time, but holy cow, there's nothing quite like it. A funny story about my kids. Uh, we built up so many air miles, I would take them around the world on, on vacations. I was, mm. One day we're sitting in the airplane. We're in the front of the plane because that's where we would sit. And uh, my son, he must have been six or something, but he goes, Dad, what's behind that curtain? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's what that's what um, big business and lots of travel does for you. Yeah, you you spoil <laughs> yeah. your kids a little bit, but, exactly. but you get to see the world, South Africa. I don't know why my mind just ran to this, but when he said that, I was thinking of the movie World War Z, when the zombies were in the back of the plane and you pulled back the curtain and it would tear rolling forward. <laughs> Yeah. Reminds me of snakes on a plane or something. Snakes Anyways, on a plane, exactly. Uh, this is good stuff, Jeffrey. Re- appreciate you coming on. I think this is one where we'd like to have you back in down the road as things continue to evolve with your books, oh, yeah. um, yep. as well as with the digitization of the oil field, because we're just at the precipice of all the good stuff. But I had a great time today. Thank you for coming in. It's been a real pleasure. Look forward to another uh, return visit. 
Great meeting you, Jeffrey. Same here. 